0: Alright, well we have been taking over a year to go straight through the book of Luke. Something we like to do often is just walk through books of the Bible. and We're learning a ton about... The life of Jesus, we're learning a lot about what Jesus had to say. And so Luke chapter 4 verse 42 is where we pick up today. If you have a Bible, you can flip on over there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some around here. If you don't have one back at home, take that home. We'll also put it up on the screen for you there. Luke 4, 42. Uh, Last week, for the first time in this series, we actually skipped over some passages. And before you get mad and and start to complain, um, we did that in order to uh, stick with some themes that we're finding in the book of Luke here. And uh, because we skipped over last week some passages in order to stick with the theme, this week we're going to pick up where we skipped last week and then we're going to skip what we covered last week and then continue on. Does that make sense? Very confusing, but you got it. You're smart. And so uh, before we get into our primary text for this morning, uh, Luke will, will give us just a picture of the routine of Jesus, which I think is really uh, important for us to look at. And so let's just let's get right into it. Luke chapter 4, uh, 42 through 44. It says, And when it was day, he, Jesus, uh, departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Okay, so here we get a glimpse of Jesus' day in, his, his day out. Uh, it's, it's really important for us to see this. It says he, he woke up with the sun and he would go where? If you look at verse 42, he would go to a desolate place. If you like to write in your Bible, underline that. A desolate place. That was his practice, to go to a place where it was desolate, where he could breathe, where he had some space, where people weren't all over him, and he could just be with the Father, it Says, but he would he would withdraw to a desolate place to pray, if you go to chapter 5, verse 16, where Ryan covered last week, and so we see it twice, it's something that he did, it was his practice, the example of Jesus for us, and we want to be like Jesus, is that he would get alone with God the Father, and he would be with him in prayer, and draw near to him, and so that That is for us. His ministry would not be what it was without this time. I want us to understand that. He thrived off of this time. His miracles, his ministry was an overflow of his time with the Father. And the same is true for you. You must prioritize your time with the Father. You must. How many of us in here have left this or any other kind of scenario where we come and we study and we say, yes, you're right, I need to spend more time with the Father. That's true. And we say, I'm going to do it. How many of us have ever done that before? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure all of us have done that at some point. Yes, I want to spend more time with the Father. But then we never schedule it. We never make it a priority in our lives. I think back to when I first met uh, my, my wife, Becky, I remember I was, it was a college, she was a freshman, I was a sophomore, and she auditioned for this band that we were in, and, and she got the spot, and uh, man, she was awesome. All the boys were going after her, and I said, I'm going to be cool, I'm going to play cool, and I stayed back a little bit, and then I finally went in. No, I didn't go in. I, was, I didn't have the guts until one day I was sitting in the cafeteria, and, and my buddy says, Josh... Let's suck it up. We're doing this. I'm like, no, I can't do it. He goes, we're doing it. And he literally picks me up. He was bigger than I. And he drags me. It literally, My feet were just dragging. He drags me. You're going to go. And we see her over there. Her back was facing us. And we get close to her. He pushes me, right, towards her. And I'm like, no. And it was like a slow motion in a you know, teen movie or something. But as I went to go talk to her, this other Rico Suave comes and slides right beside her and would you believe it that night they went on a date that same night i even remember that that night i remember walking down the sidewalk to my dorm and seeing his truck drive by and thinking oh my goodness i'm such an imbecile and so eventually guess what though he's a loser because i got the girl and so it worked out really well And, and and let me just say Imagine when I first went to ask her on a date. It was Shrek, by the way, to date you. Shrek 1. I think there's like 20 now. Shrek 1. That, that'll date me. Uh, that was our first date. And I remember, I remember going up to her and we were talking and I was all nervous. And now imagine if I was like, hey, um, you want to spend some time together? And she said, of course, she said yes. <laughs> imagine if I was like, okay, that'd be great. And I left. I mean, that would be foolish, Right? I would have to say, okay, well, here's where, and Shrek, it's going to be a good movie, right? And I got to tell her when and where we're going to meet here at this time. That makes sense, right? But so often we have good intentions with the Lord, but good intentions don't mean anything without a plan, right? We got to have a plan. And so we say, yes, Lord, I want to draw near to you. I want to be with you. I want to be like Jesus. And we walk out of the door, well, it kind of is bunk, Right? We've got to walk out of the door with a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's the date. Here's the place. Here's what I'm going to study. I always say the who, what, when, where. That's what we have to do. Jesus did it. It was a priority, a desolate place to pray. Now, now what happens? He's alone in prayer, and, and it tells us that he's alone in prayer, and the people start to hunt him down, don't they? The people of Capernaum loved Jesus. They, they, they wake up. They're, they're so used to Jesus being around. Where, where's Jesus? And they, they hunt him down. I'm just picturing Jesus, you know, in the wilderness somewhere. He's praying and all of a sudden he hears cracking. People are creeping up. There's Jesus, right? They eventually find him, right? And and, and and it says that it's time for him to go to another town. But what happens? The people of Capernaum say, no, 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 stay with us. They try to keep him from going, but he insists, no, I have to go. I have to bring this news to other Places. And so he does go and he brings this news to various synagogues, as was his custom uh, throughout the region of Judea. And so Luke gives us a summary of what Jesus is up to right out of the gate here before we get into our primary text. That he wakes up early, gets time with the Father in prayer, for us prayer, and we draw near through the Word. And then his ministry of preaching the good news, the gospel, the truth of Jesus, of the kingdom. It all flows out of his time with the Father. Now, let's get into the big idea uh, for today, the, the rest of the, the, the passage we're going to be looking at. I'll let you know that this is essentially part two of a sermon uh, that we began in January. If you remember in January, part, time, part one was we, we gave you this sermon, Reasons You Might Want to Kill Jesus. Remember that sermon? That was, that was that sermon. That was, remember the story where he went to his hometown of Nazareth and preached an awesome sermon until he started saying stuff they didn't want to hear and they tried to throw him over a cliff. Remember that? That was part one, reasons you might want to kill Jesus. This is part two, reasons you might want to follow Jesus. Why, why you might want to follow him. Here we're going to see, contrary to part one, we're going to see people actually get excited about following Jesus. So those are obviously two very polar opposites and, and here's, here's why. Because as you study the life of Jesus, you find that Jesus was polarizing. You'll see that as you study his life. Some people absolutely hated him, and then other people absolutely loved him, and devoted their lives to following him. So oftentimes I'll read to my my three kids one of these children's Bibles. I think we have like five now. We just got this new one that's really cool called the Action Bible with comic books. It's amazing. This guy used to work for DC and Marvel. You got to get that one. But one of them we have, it's really cool how on almost every page that the life of Jesus is on, almost every page you have people loving Jesus and excited to see Jesus. And then in the corner... You have these other religious type people scowling at him. They can't stand him. And that's what was the really a great depiction. It's the reality of Jesus. He was polarizing. You didn't get in the Bible people who were neutral to Jesus. You, you don't see that. However, today we do, don't we? We have people who are, are neutral to Jesus. Many people like Jesus I'm okay with Jesus. He, he, he's fine. I like, I like that he's a, he's a teacher. Okay, Jesus is, is good. And, and why is today so different than what we read in the Bible? Well, the, I believe the reason is because as I said in part one, it's because many people today know of this Jesus, have created this Jesus, who really is just a figment of their imagination. He's an easy Jesus that they've kind of created, crafted to suit their hopes and their dreams. They've twisted Jesus for themselves rather than receiving Jesus for who he actually is. And so part one is about the haters. Part two is about the lovers and those lovers who love the real Jesus. As we said in part one, we determined this. We determined that it's better for you to hate the real Jesus than to love some fake Jesus that you made up. This one's about people who love the real Jesus because he, ex- he revealed to them who he is. And so this is reasons you might want to follow Jesus. Uh, we could attach a subtitle to this if you're taking notes. Reasons you might want to follow Jesus even when it seems crazy, right? Anybody ever felt like, this is crazy? <laughs> Anybody ever felt like that? Like, what am I, this is crazy stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm believing here. It wouldn't seem crazy necessarily if this whole thing was just about follow Jesus and go to heaven. It wouldn't be all that crazy. We, we like heaven. But, but what, I'm, what, what I think we need to understand is that for many people, uh, the, the Christian faith is simply about the end. It's about, it's about heaven. That, that Christianity is a way to answer the question, what happens after I die? How do I get to, to heaven? Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Check. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Check. Do you want to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? Check. Okay, cool. You're in. I'll see you in heaven, right? But here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with what I believe is most of American Christianity. Is it's simply about the beginning and then the end. The conversion and then the heaven and we miss all of the middle. And that is living a life of following Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus. There is a middle that is incredibly important. The Bible speaks to this as being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Following Jesus every single day of your life. Reorienting your life around the Lord Jesus. And that part can be a bit crazy. You know what I mean? That part is kind of crazy because Jesus demands so much of us as you read through the scripture. Now understand that the things that Jesus demands of us, this radical living, isn't what earns our favor with God. God doesn't say, okay, you lived for me, you did these things, you've you've really lived a life that honors Jesus, therefore you get into heaven, therefore you're Christian. No, the Bible says that you trust in what Jesus has done, his life, his death for you, and out of an overflow of that, The heaven that's already secure for you out of an overflow of that, you want to live a life that honors him. You want to be a disciple of Jesus. It's evidence of a life of a person who who has really given their lives to Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning for the rest of our time together is I want to borrow a term from a German pastor, a Christian martyr. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know him. He calls it the cost of discipleship. And this is also the title of his prolific writing his his work yeah. the idea is is that the message of Jesus the grace of Jesus is free it's it's free but the middle it's going to cost you something because it cost him everything it cost him his life it's going to cost you something you've got to live wholeheartedly for Jesus bonhoeffer this martyr and this pastor his his life really testified to this he was a martyr under the nazi regime He lived fully for Jesus, even to the point of death. And so, we're going to look this morning for the next little while at the cost of discipleship. So let's read on. Luke chapter 5. And now we'll go 1 through 5. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Okay, so let's recap what we just read here. This is this is really good stuff. Maybe familiar for many of you. Jesus is by... The Lake of Gennesaret, that's another name for the the Sea of Galilee where lots of cool things happen around the Sea of Galilee because Jesus' ministry is there for a large portion of his time on earth. And has become the norm, uh, this is the norm now, people are all over Jesus. They want to hear Jesus teach and and do miracles. They're all over him. And, and, And he notices, okay, people are all over me. I see some boats over there. He notices the boats and so he helps himself into one of the boats so that he can teach from the boat while people are on the the shore. Now, I have a, a few friends who have lake houses. And if you've ever kind of been at a, a house along the lake or along a lake, you can hear people oftentimes on the other side. They don't have to be screaming. You just kind of hear their, their voices because the voice just kind of travels across the lake. And, and, and Jesus is smart, and so he, he does that. And, and so he, he gets out there so his voice can uh, carry and people can hear him. And it says once he's already in the boat, he calls for Simon. And Simon is the name for uh, Peter. It was his, his birth name. And Jesus kind of changes his name to Peter. So he calls for Simon. And, and, and understand that a lot of people read this as if this is Jesus' first time meeting Simon, but it's not. Jesus has actually met Simon before. Remember the miracle where Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law? And, and so he's already met Simon. And so he's, he's in the boat and he says, hey, uh, buddy. <laughs> he calls his buddy Simon over here. Uh, hey, I'm a carpenter and uh, I'm not quite sure, you know, what to do here. Can you come, can you come help me? And so... Simon comes out and he, he helps him and uh, Jesus says, you know, I want to get out in the boat so that I can, can teach. And, and this is one of those moments of poor timing, right? Let's, let's read into this a bit more and just really kind of understand the context. Why? Why is this poor timing? Peter is with his co-workers when Jesus calls him over here. And, and what is he doing with his co-workers? He's with his co-workers outside the boats on the shore and they are washing their nets. Now, if you're washing your net, what does that mean? You're done, right? You're, you're finished. You're, you're cleaning up. Shift is over. Worked hard. We're done. In fact, Luke tells us that they toiled all night and caught nothing. You ever pulled an all-nighter and felt like I accomplished nothing? I just studied all night and I still feel like I don't get the content, Content, right? Or I, I tried to write this paper all night and I just kept falling asleep and drooling on my paper. I've done nothing all night. I've worked hard, but nothing. I reached out to one of our church fishing gurus, Peter Scow, and uh, he helped me out on this. We did a little sermon research together, and I said, "Okay, Peter, um, why do people go fishing early in the morning? Like I remember with my dad growing up that we'd do that every now and again. We'd go fishing early in the morning, and I just thought it was kind of just an excuse to, you know, get out of a, you know, get out of the house and see the sunrise." And he goes, "No, actually it's because that's when the bugs are out, right? And the fish can eat their 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 bug food, and also the waters calm and a little more still. And so that's why they're out in the nighttime fishing all night long. And now Jesus is he has been in a desolate place. He's woken up. He's ready. He's like, let's do this, right? Kind of weird shifts with, with Peter. It says he toiled all night. They, they burned all night. Now this isn't my kind of fishing, by the way. My kind of fishing is, you know, fall asleep with a pole in your hand kind of thing. This is like real fishing. This is Career fishing, this is deadliest catch kind of fishing. This is their livelihood, and every single fish is a dollar sign to them, right? This is their work. It's hard, physical, manual labor. But after an all-nighter, they have nothing to show for them for that. Can you imagine how frustrated you would be? I mean, that would be very frustrating. You worked all night and nothing. On top of that, it's a financial stressor as well because you brought home no dough, right? You brought home nothing to show for it. There's your, your livelihood. These guys are probably feeling terrible. And yet Jesus comes to the shore. Crowds are following him. He helps himself into uh, his buddy Peter's boat. And he says, hey, Pete, come here for a second. Can, can we get in the boat and push out a little bit? And so he stops doing what he's doing. He helps him out, gets going. Now, do you feel that a little bit? you feel kind of the, the tug there? Would that maybe make you feel slightly frustrated? A little kind of like, uh Timing here, Jesus, not really, not really good. It's kind of inconvenient for me, right? And let me ask you a question. Have you ever read something in God's Word or had the Spirit of God prompt your heart in such a way where He's asked you to do something that was a little inconvenient? You ever felt that before? Things like giving financially to the mission of the church as he calls us to? You know, well, you know, you do understand, God, that Boston is one of the top four most expensive cities in the nation to live in, so um, it's kind of not very convenient. Or speaking up about your faith in an environment that is, you don't talk to me about that kind of stuff. Don't impose your thoughts, your views, your perspective on me. Or waking up early to be with Jesus when you've been, exhausted, you've been working long hours, and you love your sleep, or giving 50% of your weekend to do this, when you've been toiling hard all week, it's a little inconvenient, or even coming to church when you have preschoolers, because that's like impossible, but somehow we need to do that. We could go on and on and on about how sometimes it is an inconvenience but we have to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. I imagine Peter to be frustrated here. Certainly inconvenient. But he puts out the boat so that Jesus can teach and people can hear. And then, after waiting a bit and letting Jesus teach, he's probably like, all right, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's go in. But what does Jesus request of Peter? Verse 4, he says, okay, Peter, um, put out into the deep. Let's, let's go fishing again. And let down your net for a catch. My six-year-old son, he likes to say, really? <laughs> like that, really? Can you imagine, Peter, like, really? We fished all night long. We have caught nothing. And now you want us to go out into deep water with my already cleaned nets and fish when I, a professional fisherman, am telling you there are no fish out there. Jesus just went from, okay, maybe he missed a few social cues here and there, to this is outright infuriating. Are you serious? You are insulting my skills. You are disrespecting my time, my, my sleep. You're a carpenter. We are fishermen. We know this lake very well. We know the spots. However, you're telling me to fish? And you, I'm not reading into this frustration because we, we hear Peter say, Master, we toiled all night and we caught, what? Nothing, right? He, he could have easily just said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking. You ever felt that way? Okay, God, yeah, I get it. I get it, but you don't know my reality. You were living in uh, first century Judaism, a little different from today. You don't know my reality. Reality, But listen, Jesus always knows exactly what he is asking of you. And he's asking of them a very tangible step of faith. And in return, he's going to give them more than they could have possibly ever dreamt of. And maybe for you, he is asking of you a very tangible step of faith where you can't really see the outcome. You can't even imagine this working out good. But he, he knows. And listen, discipleship, following Jesus is going to cost you something. However, in return, you are going to get more than you could have possibly ever imagined. If you're a note taker, I want to give you three costs of discipleship. And so write these down. There's a place on the back of your river guide for that. Cost of discipleship. First one is this. Discipleship will cost you your authority. Write that down. Discipleship will cost you your authority, Uh, we could say your autonomy, your independence. If you are following Jesus, you give up the right to call the shots in your own life. You humble yourself and you say, I'm handing the reins to you, Jesus. I trust that you are God, that I am not. I trust that you know all things, that you can lead far better than I can. You're the boss. As Peter says, you're my master. So listen to how Peter does this. Verse five, Simon, Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing. What's that word? But at your word, I will let down the nets. That is a huge statement. That is a huge statement that we're all going to have to make if we're gonna follow Jesus. We're gonna have to make the statement, you know what? It makes no sense whatsoever, but at your word, I will do what you've called me to do, because you've told me to let down my nets, I will let down my nets, or I will give, or I will proclaim, or I will wake up, or I will forgive that person, or I will love that person, or I will submit to that role of leadership, or I will maybe even move there, or I will go to that country or I will adopt that child or or I will end this relationship or I will stop cohabitating with that person when you've told me that I should not do that or I will engage in this ministry. It's not just the don'ts, it's the do's. I will, God, I, I will. I'll do what you called me to do. And again, oftentimes we cannot fathom how what God is calling us to do could possibly work out. But we have to have humility. We have to have faith and obey even when it doesn't make sense. Let me give you two areas where I think this is most commonly played out for us today in our reality. One, we've already touched on, it, is money. And the second one is relationship. One with money, the Bible talks a lot about money. Jesus talks more about money than he does heaven or hell, believe it or not. Remember, when I was, when I was in school, chain wallets. If you were, were kind of edgy, Chain wallets were hip. You know, you have a wallet with a chain that would go to the front. Because, you know, if you're 15, you don't want anybody stealing your learner, learner's permit. You know what I mean? That would be bad news. And so you've got to chain your wallet to yourself. And <laughs> What Jesus tells us in the scriptures when he commands us, talks about our money, he, he's doing it because he understands that our wallet, it's chained to our heart. That's why he, he, he says these kinds of things about your money. You've got to abandon everything or be willing to abandon everything and follow him or you cannot be his disciple. The Bible is saying it's, it's, it needs to be clear that being a disciple of Jesus may cost you something and you give him not your leftovers, you give him your first fruits and you trust in faith. The rest, so you give to the supportive ministry, to the church, to globally, or are you save for a rainy day instead of trying to live some kind of lifestyle that you can't afford to live in. And that rainy day, God forbid, might not even be your rainy day. It might be somebody else's rainy day. But you've been saving up and you can say, now I can help. That, that, that's, that's Bible talk right there about money. And trusting God with money when maybe it means taking a lesser paying job. So that you can have time with y- your family. Bible says your first priority, men is to God and to your family. Your God and then your, your family. And so you might be able to provide financially, but you're not providing spiritually or emotionally. You're not giving them time. Your kids are not going to care how big your house is if daddy's never in it. Not. Jesus says, trust me with your money. Trust me with your career, with your life. Even if you cannot fathom how this will possibly work out. Trust me. That, that's, that's a big one. For Becky and I, we're kind of on the other side of this now. And so we can, we can share it um, and, and, and share it from the you know, perspective of been there, done that. I can't talk to you about having teenagers because I haven't been there yet. But I can't talk to you about this particular area. Uh, we built our dream house. I told some of you guys this before. In central Massachusetts on two acres of land. It was all we ever wanted. It wasn't massive, but it was all we thought we ever would need. And it felt like it was very fast. And then God said, okay, you're moved in, and I'm calling you to move out. And we said, what? <laughs> and he started to stir us for Moving to Boston to start a, a church, and um, it didn't make any any sense to us. It didn't make any sense to anyone else, especially <laughs> like you. You just you bought a you bought a house. I don't get that, but it made a lot of sense to God. And hindsight, is is twenty twenty, but we had resigned when moving into the city to ever owning a house again. But Master, at your word, we'll do what you tell us to do. I remember moving into our apartment in the city and. I will never forget that first night being so sweaty. It was two in the morning and had been moving all day and I jump into my shower in my one bathroom and it was a tiny shower. I remember being in there scrubbing and just looking at the grime all over the walls and thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? That morning, I took a shower in a brand new shower with beautiful and pristine and th- that night I'm in this grimy, moldy, nasty apartment shower. My wife, in the room next to us, she was laying down in bed and coming off of two acres of land where we have bears wander into our yard to hearing the buses whiz by, laying in bed thinking, what has Josh done to us? And yet somehow by a miracle of God, this summer, God prompted us to go talk to this older couple kind of behind us. We found out they were looking to move. And we sat in their living room and had this older man, Mr. Bradley, who'd lived in this house over 50 years, said, Josh, I have a good feeling about this. You guys are going to own this house. And I said, "Um, we haven't even talked about money yet because I know we can't afford this house. And then by a miracle of God, we're living in that house now. You cannot fathom, you cannot fathom Sometimes how God can work it out, but he does if you trust him Money is a big one for All of us. I imagine another one for for us that's common is relationships. I think that's the second most common one that I see. You know god's word is very clear This is hard for many of us. I imagine but second corinthians chapter 6 14 says do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever Here's what that means God knows what's best. And he says, I do not want you to be in this committed kind of relationship, like a dating love relationship with someone who is not a believer. Why would you want to bind yourself up with someone who is not passionate about what you are supposed to be passionate about, who has not devoted their lives to what you have supposedly devoted your your life to? So you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. You shouldn't date an unbeliever. If you're married, you're in that relationship, you're in it. And so let's pray. Let's ask God to do something good. But God says, listen, this is, this is so clear in the scripture. And, and, and I guess so often our, our argument is, but I have these feelings. Your feelings are real. I get it. I have, these, I have these feelings. But listen, we don't act on every single feeling we have, do we? What if you felt like hurting somebody? See, our society says if you feel this way, you must do this. And we don't act on everything that we feel. That argument does not hold water. God, will I ever find somebody who loves me? He says, yes. Yes. First of all, it's me. But you've got to trust me. right? So money and relationships. I'll, I have to start there because those are really common ones. I can go on and on and on. But know this. Discipleship will cost you your own authority over your life you're not calling the shots anymore but don't be afraid because you have one who's calling the shots who knows much better than you could know you are giving the reins over to one who cares deeply for you who is not a slave master but is a loving gracious master father who cares for you here's the next one if you take a notes, discipleship will cost you your ambition Discipleship's gonna cost you your ambition. Now, let me be very clear. Ambition is a good thing, by the way. It's good to have ambition. Christians should be passionate about whatever they're doing. We should be passionate about achieving greatness. We should be ones who are causing our culture to flourish. That's why we're called to be salt. That's why we're called to be light. We're supposed to be the flavor, right? We're supposed to brighten up a place. But listen, our ambitions change when we become a true disciple of Jesus let's let's read on now 6 through 11 6 through 11 it says and when they had let down their nets or I'm sorry when they had done this they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down to Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. So, this is good stuff. Peter did not understand how there could be a good result from the command of Jesus to let down his nets. But he put out the boat and he trusted God and he let out the nets. And what happened? They pulled in so many fish that their nets started to break apart. They caught a ton of fish. So much so that it says they had to call in the reinforcements, right? So that they could bring the haul back. And they filled up both boats So much so that they began to take on water. I don't think we have any kind of ability to just really get that. That's amazing. That's the biggest day in your career of success. It is absolutely amazing. God is sovereign over all things and he can look down at the waters and tell the fish to swim right here so that you let down your nets and they are there. They will obey God. Find great comfort in that. Let it give you the freedom to to know that God is in control. And when he commands you to do something, you don't understand how it's going to work out. He is in complete control and he can bring about a positive outcome, one that is good for you and good for his kingdom. Peter was uh, he was astonished, but not only Peter, also his business partners. We we learn about them, James and John. Not John the Baptist or the baptizer. This is John who wrote the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and revelation now we've got James and John and we've also got Peter and this doesn't talk about it but we also have Peter's brother Andrew and so uh, the 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 book of John will tell us about Andrew coming to to know Jesus and so we have two sets of brothers here they're all fishermen it's a fishing business together now here's where this ambition thing kind of comes into play it's a fishing business I believe they're all teenagers except for Peter based on some uh, another miracle that you read about in in the scriptures. And so, like any young people, the world is their oyster, right? I mean, they're, they're young, and they have the future to conquer. And they're probably looking to expand and to grow and to franchise. I don't know. They're, they're, they're thinking big, right? Let's buy more boats. Let's build bigger docks. This is an exciting season of their life. They're young, and they're in this business. However... In the midst of all that ambition, what does Jesus say? He says, oh, we're changing careers. Now you will not be catching fish. You will be catching what? You'll be catching men. In other words, different career path. I want you to come with me. We're going to gather many people, and we are going to change the world. I think you know the story of the apostles. Your mission was fishing. Now your mission is proclaiming the gospel. That's what you will be consumed with now. Now, listen. This isn't exclusive to just those who became the 12 disciples and then apostles. The Bible is clear that we all must drop our selfish ambition. God might not be calling you to change your career, to stop it, to do something else. But he is calling you, if you're going to be a disciple, to make your number one objective, your number one ambition is the glory of God, the expansion of the kingdom, the proclamation of this message of Jesus. These guys drop everything and follow Jesus. Their career changes. Now, for you, that means that when you go to work, you're not just going to work for work's sake. Your ambition is bigger than work. Now, let's be careful here, because that does not mean that now you're spies and you're in your work, and you're actually there to do something else. You're not really working for the objective of the business. I know Christians should do whatever they do in a way that glorifies God and flourishes wherever they're at. And so if you're working at a business or you're at school, you need to do that well for that objective. However, your objective is larger than that. You don't abandon one to do the other. You do both in a way that is honoring to God and flourishes culture and adds value. We are about the mission of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus is oftentimes best played out when you do whatever you do very well. So let's be careful when we talk about your ambition changes or you abandon your ambition. What is your ultimate ambition according to this? Your ultimate ambition is to follow Jesus and to be about his mission. These guys saw it as this amazing privilege, didn't they? This was an amazing Privilege. You need to understand that that in that day, Jesus was considered a rabbi, a teacher. Rabbis would go around and they would grab the cream of the crop people to follow them. Sharpest, smartest kids. And they would say, you come follow me and come teach or learn under my teaching. These guys were doing the family business, which means they weren't the cream of the crop. They already dropped out of school and now they are in the business, right? But Jesus comes to these guys who no one would expect and he appoints them. Jesus loved even the lowly, regardless of their qualifications, regardless of their merit. That's what we call grace, when he gives us what we don't deserve, and he does that. He grabs these men who are really unsuspecting. We, we, we wouldn't expect them, you know? Acts chapter 4, you read on later as these guys are changed, it says that these were uneducated, common men, and yet they're proclaiming the truths of Jesus in a way that is so powerful, and people are astonished. Some of us feel like, man, I'm just too ordinary. Listen, your ordinariness, if that's the word, makes you perfect for what God wants to do. Because a lot of times, the best people to speak in the culture and to, to lead your coworkers to Jesus and your lost family to Jesus are not people that really have their act all together, but people who are kind of ordinary or maybe made some big, massive mistakes, and they can say, look, I don't got it together. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that God is good and I can relate with you because I've been there, I've done that, I still struggle. See the difference than having someone who's all polished and comes in and people say, "Ah, no, nah, they, they can't relate with me. Your ordinariness, their ordinariness made them perfect. That's why he chose these guys and says, drop that ambition. Here's your new ambition. It's my mission. You have different ambitions when you become a disciple of Jesus. Here's your last one. This is This is important. Discipleship will cost you your security. It's going to cost you your security. Let's, let's understand the risk that is involved for these new fishers of men. Look at, look at verse 11 again. One more time, at verse 11. If I can find it. Here's what it says. And When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. These guys left what? Everything. Everything. The irony is they go from catching nothing to Jesus performing this miracle where they caught more than they could have ever imagined. The irony is then he says, okay, cool, huh? Drop it. (laughs) It's crazy, right? They, They leave everything, but not just the fish. They leave their nets. They leave their boats, which would then have likely been acquired by other people. They can't come back if this disciple... Apostle gig doesn't work out and pick it all back up again. No, they've abandoned it, right? This is the family business. It's a generational thing. They are not only risking their own security, now they're risking their parents' security. Back then, you know what your parents' life insurance policy was? You, right? Because you would care for them as they got old. And they're now saying, okay, I'm going to do something crazy. And people would say, well, what, what about your parents, right? There would have been a stigma on these guys now. You're, 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 this, isn't make, this isn't making any sense. You're loo- leaving your security you're, you're leaving their security. How are mom, pop, Zebedee going to live, right? This is crazy. It's risky business. But they are no longer finding their security in their own hands, in their own work. They're finding their security in Jesus, right? In Jesus. Now, let's look to the addition of one more disciple this morning. His name is Matthew. Flip over to, we'll skip now. Go to 27 through 32. 27 through 32. It says this. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. His name later is referred to as Matthew. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leave everything. And he rose and he followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So here's Levi. We know him often as Matthew, a tax collector, a Jewish guy, collecting money for the enemy, Right? People would have seen him as a sellout. You just you're sold out. You're, you're collecting money, taxes for the opposition, right? Those who are occupying our land. Tax collectors would have been seen as the worst kind of people. And Jesus goes up to this guy, also underqualified, not one you would pick. And he says, I want you to follow me. And like the fisherman, what does he do? He bails on his secure job and he begins to follow Jesus. Now, understand that not only does he lose the security of having a job, having a career, but he enters into the insecurity of the band of brothers that he's going to be hanging out with. All probably would hate him. Do you understand that? Have you ever thought about that? These are all buddies. They're fishermen. And then this guy who's been a chump, who's been a sellout, is now hanging out with you. They would be so, it would be so hard for them. These rough fishermen, he comes in to this very uncomfortable scenario. There is no security for Levi. There is no security for, for, for Matthew. For this season that he's entering into, he's stepping out in faith, throwing all security out the window. Why? For the reward of getting to be with Jesus. I get to be with Jesus. I get to follow Jesus. That is the reward. Let me ask you a question. In terms of security, what risk is there for you? Maybe through some of the stuff we've already talked about, you've started to identify the risk and there's real risk for you. What what risk is it for you when it comes to following Jesus with everything that you've got? Maybe it's family risk, like they're going to look at you like, you are crazy, kind of gone off the deep end. You know, you're a little too Christian. You ever heard that? A little too into this thing, right? Or maybe... It's financial risk. There's there's some risk here, or maybe it's relationship risk, and you don't understand how this is going to be good. Maybe there's there's ministry track that God is calling you down instead of daddy's law firm. I don't know, and it's it's risky for you, or you risk the comfort of having a workplace environment where everybody just approves of you. The security of the world is lost, but you have eternal security in Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to give up this worldly security for eternal security. And then, isn't it cool what what Matthew does next? He throws a party for Jesus. He's got all his rotten tax collectors and, and drinking buddies, and he says, let's have a party, and I want you guys to all meet Jesus. That's how evangelism works, by the way. I think a lot of times we think evangelism means I have to stand at Forest Hills Or downtown crossing and hand out tracts, right? And this is evangelism. Do you know people? Yeah? Do you hang out with people who aren't Christians? Yeah? Well, spend time with them. And introduce them to the one that you are deeply in love with, that is, Jesus. That's evangelism. Use your sphere of influence and connect with people who are far from Jesus. And how do the religious leaders respond? You know the story. They say, how could you be hanging out with these rotten people, Jesus? If you're a holy, why would you hang out with these people? And I love what Jesus says. He says, those people who are well don't need a doctor. And I know you think that you're well, so you don't need a doctor, right? Sarcasm. He says, those people who are sick need me, though. Those people who understand that they're, they're in a bad spot, that they need some help, they're going to realize their need for me. And I know you self-righteous people, don't, you don't think you need me, he says. And notice as we've been going through all of this this morning, and it kind of culminates here in what Jesus is saying, is that it just keeps coming back to humility, doesn't it? It just keeps coming back to humility. It requires humility to understand that you are sick and you need a doctor. It requires humility to say, you know what, I'm giving up my authority, and you're the boss now. It requires humility to say it's not about my selfish ambition, vain conceit. It's not about me. It's about your mission and it's about humility to, to say, you know what, I don't know. I, this is going to be uncomfortable for me. My security is at risk here. It requires humility and, and, and great faith. And so the reward, however, after the cost is huge. And the reward is you get Jesus, right? You get Jesus. You get this new life Following Jesus, you get eternal security. I just want to flip over, and I just want to read this, and this is how we'll close, just with a reading of it. In chapter 6, 12 through 16, let's skip ahead to kind of the future of the apostles who abandoned everything, gave up authority, ambition, and security to follow Jesus. Check this out. six twelve. it says, In these days he went out to a mountain, Jesus, and prayed. And all night continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. He had a lot more disciples than the twelve at that time. He calls twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he calls them what? He calls them apostles. Apostles. You're going to go from just being men who follow me, but you're going to change the world. I have something massive for you. That's a glimpse of what happens when you give up your authority and your ambition and your security. You get so much more in return. And Jesus uses these men in a mighty way. I want you to sink your teeth into this vision of what God has for you. Discipleship is costly. However, he's got something amazing for you. You may see it on this side of the grave. You may not. But you need to give your life to Jesus. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I'll call you to that right now. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you call out to Jesus and say, I need you. I recognize my sin. I recognize your perfect life and your death and your resurrection in my place. I need you. I want to humble myself and say yes to you and become a disciple. Some of us, we've been following Jesus, but not wholeheartedly. We're not really a full, devoted, follower, disciple of Jesus. I want to call you to that as well. But let's pray and let's just do some business with God. God, we commit it to you, Lord. Thank you for this word that you've given us. Really important, powerful stuff. God, I pray that we would be marked as a people who are fully devoted followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. We know it may be costly, but the reward is great. Thank you that you have paid it all. God, do your work in our hearts. For those who need to give their lives to Jesus, would you do that right now? For those who have given their lives to Jesus, but they're holding some things back, they're not fully devoted, Lord, stir them up and help them to deal with what they need to deal with as uncomfortable as it may be for them. May they say, but Master, at your word. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to humble myself and give you the reins. Or do a good work in us as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.